welcome to Fandom Media. Yes, thank you, announcer Jason, for bringing us into another episode of The Expanse as our coverage continues with episodes 3, 4, and 5 in a 13-episode run of The Expanse Season 2. We're really happy about how the show is going. Of course, we are book readers. In this episode, we're going to do some things a little differently. When we first started, we had a lot of things to say about the books. But given where the show is on episode 5, it's a milestone where the book and show kind of come together. There's some differences still, but the main things are aligned right now. This is a good time for us to separate the book spoilers from the TV spoilers, discuss them a bit separately. So we're going to have a few book spoilers, but the meaningful ones will be at the end, and the ones throughout the rest of the episode will be extremely mild. Let me give you an example of what I mean by a very mild spoiler. For example... I'm gonna, I'd love to point out that the tension in the TV version of the scenes where Eros is coming towards Earth and all these different decisions are made by all these different people, I would say that the tension in the show is better than in the books. That's not really a spoiler, right? Pointing out that that scene in some capacity exists in the books, right? Right. We're mostly going to be highlighting small differences that we just think are cool, not really negative things or anything like that. Or things that are particularly plot-oriented, just small differences. The major differences between the book and show or things that we want to predict, that will be at the end of this episode, and we will clearly mark it so those of you who are spoiler-verse can tune out before we get to that point. Anyway, that's our preamble. So let's get into it. Definitely. Meta Elements. One thing that we like to look at when shows have interesting titles is what the significance is of those titles. A lot of cases, they have multiple meanings, and that certainly is the case in The Expanse. So the first episode, episode three, was static. And at first, I couldn't think of what the second meaning of it was. The obvious meaning is the static of the Eros feed that they're turning into music. But then it struck me that all of the characters are static in this episode. They're all on a small leave at Tycho Station. Oh, yeah, right on. They're not spinning around in space. They're just, well, they're on a space station, but that's as close as you can get. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have the next episode called Godspeed, which, of course, with the theme of the Mormon ship, the Nauvoo, that's a clear (laughs) reference. Yeah, and, of course, Fred even says, good luck and Godspeed. But then there's a little sneaky one at the end there. The protomolecule moves at God's speed. Yeah, it basically breaks the laws of physics as far as they're concerned until they figure out what's happening. It appears to be godlike. And in a lot of ways, it still is, even with greater understanding. The more they understand it, the more incredible it is. And then, of course, Home, Episode 5, is pretty clear as well. Julie is headed home to Earth. But also, in Episode 4, Miller says that he's finding his way home. Yeah, and then they both sort of... Crash land into a new home. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the home, everyone else's homes are not threatened anymore. They were Earth's, the home of Earth mm-hmm. was very much in danger there. As book readers, one thing that we like to see is which actors read the books. They all have different techniques for how they read them. Some only like to read their point of view chapters. Some like to only read up to where the show is. And some maybe just went for it. I respect these these methods each make sense for their own reasons. I, I I would never tell an actor or actress how to do their job. But I definitely like it more when they've read the book, you know. <laughs> some of the actors go above and beyond with the material, actually. Like, for instance, Wes Chatham read The Churn and actually brought it to a psychologist and had them read it, which is just awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. And Stephen Strait has read the first three books, so he went a little bit ahead and then he decided to stop because he was getting too ahead of things. And he talked to people with military experience as well to help the role. I definitely appreciate when they look for real expertise in playing their roles. And with Amos, that makes so much sense because he's an unusual psychological case. And that comes out so much in the in this episode, or in these episodes, especially episode three, and that all just fits together really well. And same with Paolo Cortazar. That guy, his character is clearly out of the ordinary. He's had his empathy removed and all that. You can't just pick up a, a role like that and just run with it. You gotta, you know, learn how that works. What does it mean to have no empathy? Yeah, and the actor who played Paolo Cortazar read The Vital Abyss, the novella that that character is taken from. And the author said that on set he was really committed to the role and really asking a lot of questions about it. It's a stark contrast to something like 
Alec Guinness making fun of people for liking Star Wars, where you have these actors <laughs> embracing the role so much that they read the books and all that. That's just some of them have even read the books before they knew that they were going to be on the show. Yeah. And to be clear, not everyone has read the books, and some of these actors are doing fantastic jobs about reading the books. We do not think that reading the books is a prerequisite. We just think it's cool. Yeah. The other ones that have read some of the books are Dominique Tipper has read the first one. Thomas Jane has also read the first book. And Cass Anvars read the first two. He was in the same boat as Wes Chatham, who read the first two, and they started to realize they were getting things confused. They were saying things that hadn't happened yet, which <laughs> no good. I can understand that, yeah. One of the things that makes The Expanse great is not just the setting, not just these actors and how good a job they're doing, not just these writers, but just these characters. We love following these characters' stories. They really make the show great. The setting is fantastic, but I think the characters are the thing that draws me in the most. And, well, let's talk about them. Narrative. Yeah, we're going to start with James Holden, maybe the main character of the show. Yeah, if anyone's a main character, I guess you'd say it's him. Certainly now, considering what happened to Miller. Holden wasn't quite as featured in episode three, and he was more featured in episode four as he had this whole plot line with the Marasmus ship added. Yeah, that is a bit of a difference from the books, not a huge difference. And we did make a little catch there. The Doctor in that scene, it's not his first appearance. He appears in an earlier episode. Yeah, he's on one of the news feeds, so he was legitimate. They might still have been infected, but honestly, I was pretty suspicious of the veracity of their story. Yeah, I thought they could have been agents of Mao or just anyone. You yeah, know. I really thought so. He was suspicious. He lied to him. Yeah, so it was a really, really tough spot for Holden to be in. One of the things this show does extremely well is putting people in these really tough decisions where they have to weigh a bunch of different things at once and there's no clear answer. And you only have, what did he have, 30 seconds to decide right there. Yeah, that's true. It was all, not, he had all those things and very little time to make a decision. He made the wrong decision, maybe, and I think it's going to haunt him for, for the rest of the season, if not the show. Yeah. I mean, he's a man that, that really cares about innocent life and he really cares about doing the right thing. And that had to be a hard decision for him. He's definitely going to, whether he faces consequences for it, that's a whole other matter, outside of himself, he is definitely going to face consequences within himself internally and thinking about that. Definitely. We even had in that scene, Alex even questioned Holden. He couldn't believe that he wanted to give him fire control. And he said, yeah. are you serious? <laughs> yeah. And he, and, but part of that is that Holden didn't want it. To, if, if it was going to happen, Holden wasn't going to make someone else do it. He was going to take responsibility for it. He wasn't going to make Alex live through that. He wasn't going to make anyone. Maybe the, the right call really would have been to have Amos do it. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Amos could handle that emotionally. Uh, Holden would still feel responsible. He would, he would. The unintended consequence of this decision was that it created some debris that added some drama for Miller and Diogo there. Not just for something for them to escape, but it's the reason that the nuke got messed up, which created the situation with the needing to press the timer over and over, which set up Miller sacrificing himself to let Diogo go, which set up... A whole bunch of other things. That's, like you said, that's a slight difference from the book, but not a major thing. And it works well. It does work really well. Things basically end up in the same place. And I liked that tension. It was neat. I love the debris as an element that we don't normally see in sci-fi, that we should see. Now, to be fair, The Expanse admittedly does a lot of things that aren't realistic. It's just that it does things more realistically than just about any other sci-fi show. Everyone points out, that, you know, there's no sound in space. That's a true thing. But it's just more interesting to have sound in space. It's also inaccurate for Miller to see the ship miss like that. In real life, that ship would have been moving so fast that it would have been a blur. But again, adding a little dramatic tension at the expense of real science is fine if you don't overdo it, I think. And they don't overdo it. They They capture the things that matter the most, such as... The difficulty of space travel, the time delays, things like that. Those are the things that really impact the plot the most. Because sound in space, th that's... who cares? I mean, yes, it's not realistic, but it doesn't change anything. Now, you know? sometimes you can use that to great effect to show this lack of sound, and it's very eerie. But when that is your show, that's too many times that you would have to do that. So yeah, let's move on to Miller. In the books, Miller is a lot more clearly defeated, and so this nuke needing to be held down is, is, is a plot device so that he can have to stay there, whereas in the books he is just resigned to he wants to die. Obviously there's limitations of the visual model, the TV model, and there's limitations of the book. 
One of the things you can't do on a TV show is show internal conflict the way a book does. Just like you can't show action in a book the way a TV show can. There's just certain limitations at each medium whenever there's an adaptation to take these things into account when criticizing. Another thing that they did a little differently that I think I liked a lot more, actually, was that in the books he's also a lot more obsessed with both Julie and the Arrow's feed. And with the ending that they chose to give him here with this romantic moment... I was glad that he wasn't quite as obsessed in seeing her all the time. It would have been even more creepy, and it was a little creepy to me. It was moving and romantic, but it was definitely creepy. Yeah, I think that in the book, it's a little bit more clearly defined that he is... And this is good to know, whether whether you've read the books or not. This is a good thing to know, because it explains a lot about Miller's character. He's not as driven by love in the books. He... Certainly, I mean, she's attractive and young, so he's going to have, it's going to be present in that, in in the whole picture here. But mostly what drives him is that she is just a better person than him in a lot of ways that he wishes he was. Here she is, a rich person born with everything. She can do whatever she wanted in life, and she's a better belter than he is, and she's not even a belter, right? That is just really snapped him out of his lifelong jaded existence and said, hey, look, this person is doing it right. This is a person that I can admire. And it's maybe one of the first people he's admired ever. And he is also attracted to her. He is also in love with her in a way. But that is just a part of it. I think that her personality and what she means to him, I think that matters even more. And I think that is made clear in the show. They just added this more overt romantic element to it that might distract from that a little bit. Yeah, I guess they bumped up the romance. They didn't bring it out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. When talking about Miller, it's hard not to bring up Diogo, Mm -hmm. who is maybe my new favorite character, honestly. Maybe my favorite minor character. He just steals every scene that he's in. (laughs) (laughs) His character is a lot more featured, I think, in the show than he is in the books. And he just has, I mean, the charisma just adds so much to it. But some of the plot points that he's had aren't brought out of nowhere. For instance, he has that line where he says that he crushes ass to dust. (laughs) And... In the books, he gets these weird red things put onto his teeth, and Miller <laughs> thinks that it could be a sexual thing, so he has some sexual prowess in both versions, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and in the ending montage, we see he's now getting an OPA, a belter tat. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting detail here, actually, a little bit of backstory, is that those tattoos that they have around their neck are inspired by the fact that those old spacesuit helmets used to burn their skin like that in a ring, and Anderson Dawes tells Miller that back in season one. Yeah, that's right on. Yeah, some of these small details that the belters have with their lifestyle and how poor they grow up and all these small things that happen. I love how well thought out some of these things are. A little less well thought out, but probably well thought out in terms of filmmaking perspective is Diogo's room is pretty huge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny to call that room huge, but compared to the book, it's huge. Yeah, and the books are like hot bunking. It's it's small and confined, but that's a lot harder to film, and I don't really mind it. It just is a funny thing to me. It's like a sweet yeah, it seems like, yeah, that would that, that room would actually cost an insane amount, just even though it's a small picture it being like downtown Tokyo, and maybe you get an idea of how expensive it should be. Miller shares his first spacewalk with Diogo there as well, which was a great scene. It wasn't my favorite example of their visual effects. It's hard to show someone soaring through black <laughs> space and not have it look a little cheesy, but it was definitely emotional. What kind of belter are you? <laughs> yeah, I like that. It was really neat. His uh, Once again, Again, Thomas Jane's acting is fantastic there. His fear was apparent, but he also was his machismo and not wanting to show his fear. It was <laughs> it was there both, and he kind of the way he plays it off with the little yeah, you can tell I'm scared, but I'm not gonna sh- I'm not gonna talk like I'm scared. That kind of thing. Like I like that. One of I think the greatest tragedies of the whole series, honestly, is the tragedy of the Nauvoo. Yeah, in that. It's such a noble cause that the Mormons have there. They've put so much of their resources into finding a better life, finding a new world, and it just gets used for destruction. To stop the destruction of Earth. I think it's a good reason, a good but reason. it is tragic. It's and still it gets, tragic, yeah. It just gets taken from them, so it's very emotional yeah. when you when you see all them clustered together not knowing what's going on. Yeah, it's also, it's funny because I, I kind of agree with that, but also it just, they're so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> They're just going out there. Just, yeah, we're going to find a planet. Are you? (laughs) You know, they're crazy. But given the recent news about those exoplanets, for instance, Mm. those seven exoplanets, 
I would be on the spaceship, even if it meant that my children and my children's children were were committed to that. I think I would make that decision. Yeah, it was a beautiful ship too, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I liked um, Fred's little bit of, of nostalgia there, his sentimentality. I liked how he, you were meant to go... To a new sun. To a new sun, yeah. That was a really powerful moment. I liked that. Another really powerful moment was, you know, the ultimate moment of the episode was Julie and Miller coming together. And the funny thing is, is that they come together on Eros, you know, love. Yep. <laughs> and they crash into Venus. Love. <laughs> it's a true love story. That's right. <laughs> I like how Julie, it seems to be, if we can break this down just a little bit, what's going on with Julie is that it seems to be that what Miller said is sort of true. Maybe he didn't use the right language, but that it infected her and, and that she infected it. Infected probably isn't the right word, but that they're part of each other. That is a good enough way to explain it. I think the proto-molecule is supposed to adapt and take on everything it, it finds and adapt it and use it. And it goes from there. And once it does that, it continues to grow and it does its thing. And it's interesting to me that it doesn't really care what happens to it as long as it's not threatened, as long as it can continue its work. It's basically some sort of threshold. It's like... Do whatever you want around me, as long as I get to keep growing and learning. And that's seems to be its, which, its prime directive. If you which you know that. is actually very human. Yeah, and most humans, most humans just want to continue to grow and yeah, and, and maybe to reproduce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> grow. Yeah, so I think that's pretty neat. And so the fact that Miller was able to convince Julie using the personality elements that are still there. By saying, hey, look, we're, you're still going to get to continue the work. You're still going to get to go to this new home. You're still going to get to do your thing. But still kill everybody, you know, <laughs> in the process. You know, funny thing about, um, you know, part of when he realizes that it's her is he hears the thing about the Razorback. You can't take the Razorback. Yeah. Here's that over and over. Was it just me or did you envision that line way different in the books? In the show, it's sing-songy almost and happy. Yeah. And it was an interesting decision. I have to feel like it's on purpose that they chose for her to deliver it in that way. But I always pictured her angry or yelling it in some way. No, I pictured it more like this, the way they had it. Because mm. it's supposed to be kind of like her childlike aspects of her personality coming out. It's, not, mm. it's supposed to be uh, simple. It's supposed to be not a complicated series of emotions. It's supposed to be a very basic aspects of her personality. Because the protomolecule isn't her. You know, it doesn't have all... It's gotten pieces of her in there. It, so it can't be her full personality. And thus, it's going to be remembering how she remembers the Razorback. It's not going to take on... It's not going to look at the situation in a new way. It's mm. going to recycle these old memories and these old feelings. That said, I didn't picture it this way because... Well, because it's just really hard to picture. <laughs> like, what are you... The picturing the proto-molecule is <laughs> not the easiest thing to do. I actually did have a pretty good picture of I mean, proto-Julie because they describe her as mermaid-like. So I pictured her legs not really being there, actually. That kind of, I guess they did that, yeah. It's more just the whole back of her. Yeah. Rather than the lower half. An interesting clarification that the writers had on the Churn podcast, which I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you might very well be listening to that as it has the authors on it every week. So it's, based, it's, it's the official podcast. They talked a little bit about the Miller-Julie scene and the metaphysics of it in that they don't make it very clear in the books, but they made it a little bit more clear here in the show that that moment ripples forwards and backwards in time, that the protomolecule has the ability to move through time and space. And so that would explain why Miller sees Julie and hears her talking to him. And it also explains why Julie saw him and that sparrow back in episode nine of season one. Which is why they come together so naturally, which is why she's not just shocked, like, who the hell are you? You know, even though he's introducing himself, like, we haven't been properly introduced. But she does know, quote unquote, know him. And... He apparently knew her before, which does go a long way towards explaining some of his draw towards her. It, in a sense, already happened, and he's reliving it. So that's it's sort of a time paradox, but hey, that's, you know, time is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on now to Naomi, because she has some interactions with Miller that are really interesting to talk about. Mm -hmm. Here in the show, she gets through the bulk of the communicating with Miller when he's on Eros, but actually in the books, that was Holden, and... He had more of a bond with Miller. Naomi, don't get me wrong, she seems sympathetic to him, but she only speaks privately to Holden about this, and she actually regrets not saying goodbye to him, but here she does get to 
say goodbye and she gets a whole lot of scenes with him. Yeah, I think this makes more sense. I think this is an improvement from the book because Naomi and Miller have more in common based on their backgrounds. They're belters. They have, that's a huge thing they have in common that Holden doesn't get. He can feel it, he can intellectualize it, but he doesn't know what it's truly like to be a belter. Yeah, there's also parallels here between Miller and Julie's relationship and Miller and Naomi's relationship in that she's a guiding light type of figure and Julie is and Naomi is. Naomi is for Amos, obviously, as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Part And part of this relationship, we're using Naomi instead of Holden as the main contact point, is it allows her to be the bridge between Holden and Miller, which makes sense because if Holden has issues with Miller based on how he handled the Dresden situation. Obviously, he redeemed himself here. Very, yeah. very much so. But part of that was, big part of that was because of Naomi. And I love the line, for example... Don't get all weird and chatty like Holden, or however she says it. And, of course, Holden smiles really big at that. And that's just another thing that kind of Naomi's sneaking in, like, look, you have these things in common, guys. You know, you're not that different after all. I thought that was very human, slash belter. <laughs> Belters are human. <laughs> Belters are people, too. Of course, this decision also led to a conflict between Naomi and Holden themselves in their newly budding relationship, which... Isn't a will they, won't they? They are, but they still fight and they fought here. And I love, I love that Naomi goes off and blows off steam by dancing and playing a sport with drummer there, which I, I love that whole scene. Yeah, that whole scene of all of them blowing off steam in different ways was great. They all did it in different ways, but it was really important to show how each of them was different and how they needed to handle their business. Alex had this guilt storyline continuing, and he blew off his own steam there by piloting. Practicing over and over. That was brilliant, I thought, yeah. Yeah, and another little detail that people with an eagle eye might notice is that his hair just keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I did not notice that. <laughs> His, his how much he cares about other people and innocence has been drawn out a lot more. That's not that's, that's something that's a bit uh, that's that's emphasized more than from the books. Yeah, I, I like that. It's a very good. It gives him a little. It gives him more character. Gives him more a more compelling story in general, and more his personality is fleshed out more. I'll tell you when I read the books because we watched the show before we read the books. I knew the actors and in, in the show, and so I, I pictured them for a lot of them and. Alex had a lot of charisma in the show and was, had some storyline there. And then I got to the books and I was disappointed that he wasn't really featured very much at all until yeah. much, much later. So they moved this forward and they did that for all of the Rocinante crew. We just see so much of their character. But when you first pick up the book, sometimes you can be, where's the Alex or, or Naomi that I know and love? Yeah. <laughs> One of the domino effects of giving Alex more care for others is his interaction with Amos, who, of course, has a lack of empathy, and that cr creates this interesting parallel, especially when they interact with each other. But despite that, Amos still has, you know, despite him maybe being able to handle these things a little better, he still needs to blow some steam off, too. He still has his drinks with Miller. We don't see it, but in the books, he would have, you know, visited a brothel. Yeah, right. And, of course, there is also his ability to interact with Cortazar, which is just by itself is a fantastic set of scenes. Yeah, it really is, is so good, and it was so surprising to me. I mean, it makes sense that they would bring in the Vital Abyss in this way, but it was just a really pleasant surprise to see them incorporate this, and I really loved Paolo Cortazar in general. I really love that character's way with words. I know it's the author's way with words in the Vital Abyss, but that character is very poetic. Yeah, uh, and this actor really pulls it off. He's so creepy. As Amos said, he's that creepy guy. Yeah. <laughs> Amos <laughs> thinks he's a creepy guy, and whoa. <laughs> but I, yeah, and just to be clear, the Vital Abyss, the Churn, and three other short stories exist that are keyed into very to specific characters. In case you didn't know what we were talking about, those are very worth checking out. Even if you don't read the main books, these help fill out some of the characters like Amos and Cortazar and some of the others. One of the great moments in those scenes with Cortazar and Amos was, of course, him learning about this sociopathy procedure and the acting on Amos's face as he learns about this. He wanted to know if it was reversible. That was a really poignant moment there. He was clearly talking about himself, not about Cortazar. Amos has a lot of poignant moments like that in those episodes, but he also has a lot of really funny moments. Some of the funniest moments, I think, of the whole show. Like when Holden says that it feels like they're covering up a crime. 
<laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah, and then he has this bombs away line where he said he's always wanted to say that. That was one of his few real smiles after he said it too. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. A character with very little to be happy about and a lot to be stressed out about is Fred Johnson. Caught in the middle of a lot of different things, caught in the middle of the different politics, and he is a man that is doesn't really mints when it comes to doing the right thing. That's something that was brought up to Aversal by Admiral Souther, that he didn't lose his soul. He was one of the few people to have the job he had and not lose his soul. And that's because when it came to doing the right thing, he didn't hesitate. And Fred, being a guy who does the right thing, was being pulled back and forth, having to find them as the right thing kind of kept changing, mm-hmm. <laughs> shifting and becoming unclear. Still... I loved that balance of him having that personality aspects while also showing his sentimentality. Like I said before with his, his line about the Navu and also his quote, his Vonnegut quote, <laughs> where he says, so it goes. And it's just really well done by Chad Coleman, too, because he's such a deep voice and it just has all that gravitas i really that's really good now drummer is a character that doesn't appear until book five of the series but she's been combined with an earlier character sam rosenberg because there's some kerfuffle with the casting of that character but basically it made sense to combine the characters the law of conservation of characters (laughs) (laughs) and she plays a much needed role in showing us someone for Fred to interact with in the scenes that we see of him alone. Yeah, and he's got to have someone to bounce ideas off of, someone who's got to give him advice, someone who's got to keep him... Yeah, she, some, she's a lot of great lines. Someone who's got to tell him that he's the most powerful man in the galaxy. <laughs> someone to bring him coffee. <laughs> and as as we saw at the very end, he has the power and she brings him that coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you've got 150 nukes. You can have all the coffee you want. <laughs> <laughs> We don't see a lot of Mars the last in these episodes. There's not a lot of Bobby. That's clearly coming. Yes. But we get a taste of what's to come there as they resolve this more Earth OPA plot that Mars is sort of embroiled in, but not as directly responsible for. They're more like more like the tension involves them because Earth is thinking that maybe they're doing this. Maybe this is them. Maybe Mars is behind all this. But We don't get scenes from Mars's central command. We don't really see their reactions to a lot of this stuff. But we know that's coming. In the meantime, quite a lot is happening on Earth. Not just with Aaron Wright and Avrasala and the generals, but also with Jules-Pierre Mao. He has his assets seized. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And he also seems to vanish. Aaron Wright is, I need a new patron. He smashes his phone across. Mm -hmm. He's very frustrated. Yeah, yeah, that is what Mao says. And I wonder who he's talking about. Yeah, I do too. I really do too. And it's we're going to see a lot of big things coming, of course. We know we haven't seen the last of Jules-Pierre Mao. He's an extremely powerful man. Even though his assets have been seized, you got to know he's got more going on. He, uh, <laughs> he's got some assets the government doesn't know about. You can believe that. A really poignant moment from the war room there is Aaron Wright asking Avrasala, did you ever think you'd see a moment like... And she's nodding well before he even finishes the question. She's like, yeah, yeah, I did. Did you not? You didn't think think you'd see this coming? You are in the wrong line of work, pal. That's why I'm smarter than you, even though you're higher rank than me. (laughs) We see Avrasala's first interaction with Holden somewhat in that they... She helps him out. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She's met his mother, but now she sees him on screen and doing the right thing. And her personality really comes through, doesn't it? When she's talking to her husband, Arjun, and he's like, don't interrupt me. Let me, and she just interrupts him. (laughs) And also, other thing about that scene is just it shows you the frustration of the great distance between them. Part of that is her interrupting him, but part of it is he's on the moon. And it's about a minute delay and that really shows you just how frustrating that is and how stressful it is. It sets up how stressful it is in the war room when they're waiting about 15 minutes between each of these transmissions. Those 15 minutes must be agonizing. Here, again, 15 minutes ago, we heard the arrows was hurtling straight towards Earth. We're not going to hear anything else for another 15 minutes. <laughs> What's happening? It's, yeah, that's, that's just the tension there is great. And I think they did a really good job of, of bringing it out with the quick cuts going back to different scenes, different locations, and showing each of them learning 
new information that changes the perspective on a dime just really fast. Mm -hmm. Another set of quick cuts they had between all the different locations was, of course, that ending montage that we saw. And I love that moment we first see with Avasarala laying on the roof again, paralleling her in season one when she would do that and think about rocks falling on Earth and destroying everything. And in this moment, it's a relieved moment, a happy moment. Politically speaking, she's looking really good right now. <laughs> a politician that stays in the danger zone, that doesn't flee when all the others are, that's a rarity. She's going to look good, right? That said, those missiles are still up in the air. That's true. They're Get still it? that. They are up in the air uh, or out there in space. And she vouched for <laughs> this situation. That's true. So she's got that to answer for. The bravery may not be enough to make up for handing the arsenal over to another power. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that goes. A couple of cool differences that are just neat to highlight but aren't spoilery is, for instance, that Holden doesn't find out that uh, Miller is still on arrows until they're actually chasing it. Yeah, that's a pretty big realization for Holden. Um, he is remembering especially that, as we pointed out earlier, Holden has a closer relationship with, with Miller in the book, so it hits him harder. But it's still really powerful in both both book and show. And they also did a slight difference where Naomi actually was the one to code a detonation failsafe rather than it being an accident. And it was only a five-second failsafe, uh, <laughs> which seemed really short after seeing that one being 60 seconds and how intense it was. But it was just basically so that if, if Miller died or anything happened to him, that it would still go off. Yeah. Another piece of really... Uh, another world-building detail. Is there's tons of awesome world-building details in The Expanse book and show a lot of them are similar. A couple of things. One small difference here was that this was they played Pashang in the show and Galga in the books. And Galga is more like darts plus soccer. They just you know, this is a very small change. They this is they basically change it to some sort of handball variant, and it looked cool, you know, yeah. whatever. And it made sense that that would be the kind of thing that belters would be good at because they're always in confined spaces where they have walls, and it's easy to have at least a ball and something to hit it with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We also saw, of course, Ganymede Gin. We've heard of Ganymede Bourbon from Bobby, and Miller talked about drinking this Ganymede Gin, and then the Rocinante crew pours one out for him. It looked really nice, too. The gin, the bottle looked really fancy, but that was a really moving scene, the pouring one out for their homie there. That was really good. And it was part of that ending montage that showed a lot of different things happening. After the asteroid crash into Venus, we saw a bunch of different little things and I thought that was extremely poignant and really I really liked it. It was it was <laughs> it was a contrast to the joking moment of drummer giving Johnson his coffee. It was a different yeah. kind of beverage moment. <laughs> one sad beverage <laughs> moment, one very funny beverage moment. Audio elements. Now it's easy to miss because there's so much going on visually, so much going on emotionally. But both of those things, the visuals and the emotions, were very much accentuated and enhanced by really excellent music and sound effects in general. Let's start with some of the smaller details, moving up towards the big scene-stealing music moments. For one... Obviously, the accents are a huge part of the show in that Belters have different accents, Martians have different accents, and I want to highlight right here Kara G's accent, that's drummer, in that she sounds really natural when she's speaking Belter mm. and speaking in that slang language, and you just see her relax, and she sounds very forced and like it's her second language when she's speaking plain English, and but very crisp and like she's trying to speak clearly. Yeah, it's really, really well done. It's a perfect example of something that you absolutely can't really do in a book. That just comes out so well in a TV show, if it's done well. <laughs> and it's done very well here. Very happy with that. And so, of course, we also have the Belter conlang, that is constructed language here, which just adds a lot to the show in general. And you hear characters like Diogo or Drummer or, or Naomi or Miller bonding Yeah, even over. Miller, yeah. Yeah. And we even have Belter music. That's one of my favorite things about the show in general. I believe I talked about it in episode one is how much that adds to the show. It's just music is part of life. We listen to music. We go out dancing. And, Everyone, yeah. And, of <laughs> course, we're still going to do that in the future. And so seeing, for instance, them make music out of Eros, out of all of the Belters there, 
is one of my favorite things in all of the whole book series, all of the whole show. And I really love Diogo, what he said about it and how, like, it, Miller didn't respect him for this, but I did, that he was talking about it being their anthem and he wanted to listen to it when they were on Eros and all those sort of things. It was the voices of all these dead belters. It was like real people. It was like their actual voices. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely, it honored them to do that, I think. And I, I loved it. <laughs> Miller just, Pretty cynical. <laughs> but I like how Diogo just wouldn't at all, is just irrepressible. You know, he doesn't bend to Miller's cynicism, like, at all. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes he seems a tiny bit irritated with him, but even then he gets a smile back on his face pretty quickly, I think. Yeah, the, the, the time he got the most irritated with him, he ended up, Miller, like, a few minutes later, gives his life for him. He's like, <laughs> okay, well, I'm irritated with you, but you're sacrificing yourself for me. So, yeah, you're all right. <laughs> you're yeah. all right, Miller. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. And Diogo, that just... I think that just sets Diogo more towards the, his his belterism. That's, that's shortly after he gets his tattoo, and you know, it's the montage music is playing through all that. It's really good. I thought Julie's voice was a really important element. It, it, it's something for Thomas Jane to play off of because at first he thought it was Naomi's voice, and he starts to gradually realize what he's hearing, especially when the word Razorback comes out, yeah. and he's like, "Well, that's unmistakable." And it, it's it's really neat. The, it was very musical. Her the way her voice was done, the echoes, and it was very powerful. In general, like I said, there's just a lot of really strong music, especially in episode five. The range of music in particular, they went from like heavy EDM to basically chamber music mm. in that final scene where it's just violins. I think a viola, probably a cello playing along with proto Julie and Miller's <laughs> meeting there with that music. It just added so much. Definitely got me in the feels. Really, really liked it. Yeah, the music was beautiful. It was my favorite non-EDM thing they've had on the show so far. Yeah, yeah. Just I hope they keep going with this quality because it's really, they've set the bar pretty high and I couldn't be happier. Visual elements. Speaking of proto-Julie, <laughs> the visual of seeing the proto-molecule all decked out on Eros was fantastic to see. It was Definitely really different than I pictured in a good way, I think. I, I think it worked well for this, for it to be ethereal and more mystical than eerie and creepy and, and almost gory, which in the books there's like hands crawling around carrying rib cages, which, yeah. <laughs> which is, is, you know, can be a little funny or silly or I don't know what, but it... It wasn't missed by me. Let's just say that. <laughs> I'm glad that they made this decision. <laughs> yeah. Instead, they had us go back through old sets that we had seen in season one, the pachinko parlor and the streets and eventually the blue falcon, which was a lot bluer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was just really neat. And, and Miller, when he gets there, you know, it's, it's, it was the shades of uh, Jack Nicholson there when he pries the door open and is like, remember me? <laughs> And et cetera, that was good. His his ability to break the tension with brief comic moments is was really, really appreciated. Something that might surprise a lot of people is that there are a lot of practical effects in use there on Eros. That they had like glowing blue things all over that set set mm. up for him to interact with and to, for for lighting and things like that. And they obviously added things like the blue fireflies and things like that and yeah. that had to be cgi that bird really really got me seeing the bird i really wasn't expecting that and the way miller looked at it it really got him it really got me with the music in place and the fact that it was basically the climax of book one here is the equivalent that's why by the way a lot of a lot of you who if you haven't read the books you this is a good time to point out this is where book one ends essentially this was we had a friend say to us that really felt like the end of a season there yeah. and it's not even halfway through we're like yeah there's a reason for that it's the end of book one and so it is a point where things really come together thought they get a good job of showing from miller's point of view what was going on on eros as it responded to threats as soon as the missiles were launched which by the way was another great visual seeing oh. those missiles launched that was really cool but then seeing when, when Miller says, hey, what's going on up there? Because the, all of a sudden the blue fireflies and everything is just moving really fast. They, everything gets accelerated. And they're like, funny you should ask. <laughs> and again, it's responding to a threat. It, it recognized the threat immediately and responded. And Miller, of course, later points out, it's just going to dodge those missiles. Like Of all the points he made to convince them that mm -hmm. his plan was right, I think that was the one that they most couldn't argue. It's like, look, you really think those missiles are going to hit it? Come on. <laughs> it, you saw it dodge before. It's going to – it's way too advanced for that. <laughs> One little very funny thing I want to point out is that it looks like they still have a nuclear football in the future. Now, if you're not familiar with what that term means, in the United States, 
president's entourage. Wherever the president goes, there's a person who carries around the nuclear codes in a briefcase. And I think that briefcase is typically handcuffed to this person, like some sort of crime film. Here, we basically saw the same thing. It wasn't the nuclear codes, but it was a small, like, laptop-sized device that the, that the secretary had to use his thumbprint on to authorize the nukes to be launched. It wasn't something that just any general can just order done. It can only come from the highest possible office. I thought that was a really nice touch because it made it feel more familiar. It made it seem like modern times. It made It, it calls up our own real-world fears of nuclear war and things like that. It kind of taps into our own, you know, our own existing fears on that, on that front. Finally, we have the ending montage, which we talked about a bit before, but I think is plot element, but it's also a visual element, the way they go from scene to scene, showing how everyone's reacting to this. And then showing us the actual crash into Venus, which is beautiful. beautiful. Really, really nice. Yeah, I agree. Very powerful and beautiful and sad all at once and makes you wonder... What's going to happen next? Final thoughts. So we're going to talk about our favorite moments, our least favorite moments, and then we're going to give you a warning and move on to our small spoilery discussion. So stay tuned for that if you're interested. Right on. Ash, what were your favorites? Well, I already mentioned it a little bit, but it was that musical montage of all the characters decompressing and dealing with the aftermath of the attack on Eros. I loved Diogo introducing Miller to the music. I loved everything about it. I loved what all the characters were doing. Right on. I couldn't decide on just one. I had a couple things written down here. I really, really liked the process of getting information out of Cortazar. That would have been my second favorite. Oh, right on. So we agree on that one. For example, just the whole process of all that whole bit, starting with Amos asking how this works as far as whether it's reversible, all the way towards him realizing that he's the perfect man to, to, un, to, to talk to this guy and how he then explains it to Holden afterwards. He's like, look, it's very simple. This guy, you know, he loves the protomolecule. So you don't want to talk about destroying it to him. It's very simple, you know, even though it's not very simple. But the way he breaks it down is very simple, which leads me to a, my favorite sort of recurring theme in The Expanse, which is that people, they get into these moral quandaries. We talked about this at length in both the first episode and here. They get into these moral quandaries, but sometimes someone is able to just shut down the whole argument to cut through all the haze, all the fog, all the difficult moral situations with something with a one-liner that really just gets everyone to realize what's the most important thing or to set the tone. For example... Like I just said about Amos explaining things to Holden, but more poignantly, Naomi's saying, he's risking his life out there. How about we do the same up here? Or when Holden is trying to talk Alex out of feeling guilty for working so hard at tech, to, you know, feeling guilty about losing those 25 men. And he says, next time I'll save all of them, <laughs> you know, and that, and Holden just can't, has no response. He's like, okay, right on. All right then, you know, <laughs> and there's a lot of moments like that. And finally, Miller has one of the best lines of all. When Diego comes back at him with, why would I listen to a loser like you? <laughs> and Miller says, well, that's the thing, kid. You shouldn't. You know, <laughs> this is really <laughs> dry and brilliant there. It's not just these one-liners that cut through it. I really like how The Expanse puts characters in moral quandaries and has them resolve these quandaries in ways that are extremely well-tailored to how that character has been developed. Fandomedia.reviews. I didn't like the kiss a whole lot. I also didn't like it, but I have grown to accept it, especially after learning that it was more improvised than planned. Yeah, that's interesting, huh, guys? It was not in the script. They just went for it. I think maybe uh, the actors the actors were just like, hey, let's, yeah, I'm not let's sure. do this. It's not, yeah, <laughs> it's not clear to me if it was mutual and the actors and the writers, if they all realized that's what the moment required, but it was on set, it was once they were filming it that they made this decision. Yeah. But yeah, I thought the kiss was generally pretty weak and I could have easily done without it. I, I think it would have been just as emotional, more emotional maybe for me if he hadn't kissed her. So I, I do agree with you. For me, the bird was the really emotional hitting moment for me. <laughs> and uh, so anything after that, I couldn't really, couldn't measure up. <laughs> <laughs> if you are a spoiler verse, you don't want to hear about what happens in future books, this is the time for you to tune out. We do appreciate you tuning in to this episode of Fandom Media. Please leave us a review on iTunes and a rating. You'd be surprised how much that helps a new podcast get noticed and recognized. And we'd really appreciate getting that ball rolling. Fandomedia.reviews. So... 
My least favorite moment was with my favorite character was just Bobby. I just thought that the scene with her in episode three was really weak with her and the conflict with her Martian troop. I see why they're doing it, and this is why I wanted to talk about this in the spoilery section, is that they're setting the stage for her future arc with Ganymede and with all of them being killed yeah, and her oh, going to yeah. Earth. It's gonna be really good. Yeah, I agree. But right now, I just don't like seeing people have that that stupid conflict. Yeah, and I don't like that she's so aggressive in general. That's a that's a, a little bit jolting. I'm sure that it's going to change. She's yeah. going it, to... It's almost certainly being set up that she will realize that that attitude was wrong and that it was dangerous. Exactly, which is why I think it's the right choice to make that it's going to be great in the long term. And I'm excited to see her in the very next episode and see how she reacts to all this. Yeah, and of course, we're the, the going to Ganymede means we're going to have some new characters coming in. Prax. Praxadiki. Very excited to see him. Some other spoilery ideas we had was, we talked about earlier how Naomi has had this relationship with Miller that she didn't really have in the books. And I wonder, I think the natural extension of that would be that Naomi should be the one to see the proto-Miller. Yeah. Be influenced by him in that way. I think that's a really good idea you had there. I think it fits really well. I think there's a really good chance it's what they do also. To be clear, in the future books, Miller uh, appears to Holden in like protomolecule form and, and talks to him and gives him advice. So it would be a really neat pivot from the book to do that. You know, it'd be a good way to spread things out a little more, you know, because they're obviously not trying to be as Holden focused as the books were. Yes. And so having some of that go to Naomi, that would be a really good way to do that. It's interesting because some of the ramifications of that might be long reaching if they do do that because... Miller interacting with Holden in this way is part of the slow decline, if you want to call that, the moral decline of Holden, where he becomes more cynical and has more of a hair trigger and becomes more Miller-like because of this. And if they chose to have Miller connect with Naomi, maybe they wouldn't have that arc. And maybe it would be that for Naomi? Or maybe it's a reason that they wouldn't do it at all. Like a lot of book-to-show adaptations... It seems that when a show has to break from the book, sometimes that they have to then build on that additional break and then they get farther and farther off of the original plot line. I'm not sure that they're going to have to do that with The Expanse because the way the plots are more are so compartmentalized, they don't have to build off of big changes. They can go back to the original. They can go off in their own direction and then come back to the mainstream. So I'm not sure that they are going to be faced with that, but it would that would definitely be a, a, a decision that would have dom- a domino effect. Mm-hmm. If they make Naomi the conduit to Miller, that's going to necessitate a whole lot of other changes, which might necessitate other changes on top of other changes. So that's the flaw with this theory, I suppose, is that it would cause so many other changes. But despite that, that's the only real flaw I can see yeah. in the idea. I think it's very not unlikely to be true. Yeah. Another thing that has to do with Naomi, another little difference, is... Holden gives Fred the protomolecule in exchange for um, delaying the missiles on their way to Eros um, in the books. And here we see that plot thread left hanging. <laughs> left dangling in space. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think that given Miller and Naomi's conversation about the protomolecule, he says that that's her mission. I, I wonder if she might do have something to do with giving it to Fred or giving it to the OPA or anything like that. Yeah, that's certainly going to be a major plot line. The protomolecule is going to be doing its thing on Venus, but there's also the sample out there that, like you said, presumably is going to end up with Fred one way or the other because that's what happens in the book, and they're probably not going to go with a big change there. But we could be surprised. Maybe something else will happen with it entirely. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that someone finds it there on... <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> that would be really crazy, though. That actually. would be. That would. So I, I think they're going to give it to someone, at the very least. Another thing that I was thinking about is, um, as we know, Holden gets some charges for what he's done in, the, in this this uh, war. Blowing up the Marasmus is going to have consequences. Yeah, so yes. I think he, that'll be added to his charges. Ultimately, none of those matter. Yeah. Um, but it will be interesting to see how they handle that. That's going to cause conflict. That's going to change how he's perceived. It's going to make him a more controversial figure than he already was. I mean, it's a real humanitarian ship. He we- killed humanitarians. Yeah, like most people aren't going to look see the nuance of that. Not going to see what a tough decision it was. Not going to see what huge threat all of humanity was under. They're just going to see Holden killed humanitarians. <laughs> this, this guy that, you know, nearly caused war... 
Obviously, we know that he had a good reason for what he did with, with regards to both the Marasmus and with the declaration that Mars attacked them in you know, <laughs> yeah. episode two or whatever that was, season one. But he that did make him famous throughout throughout the verse. He people know who he is and they see him as this kind of you know shoot from the hip kind of guy. That might be the kind of the uh, perception people have of him. Yeah, and it's only gonna become more so. Another thing I was thinking about was after Leviathan wakes, there's actually a bit of a time jump. Some time passes. That's like, right, like 18 eight, months. Yeah, yeah like a large time months. jump. Yeah. I wonder if that's what will happen here, or uh, I think they'll have to do some kind of time jump because... I don't think it'll be after this episode, though. I don't think it will be as long, either. Yeah, it might not be the full 18 months. They just need... It's certainly some time has to pass, because the protomonical has to have time to build and grow and get even creepier. That said, I do think that they could show it doing those things while they're doing other things. Ooh, they could montage it gradually or just like every once in a while, whoop, <laughs> look what's happening. They could that's a lot of potential there showing like the surface of Venus and there could be some potential for some really awesome visuals. Yeah, I would like to see a scene of some people, you know, just watching Venus. You know, we know that people gather all around Venus to see that like a movie. Satellites and, and ships and Yeah, and yeah. just people just getting a front row seat and I love to see Someone there and experiencing it. Just a tiny scene of a new character. Maybe they'll have Diogo go there and check it out. <laughs> it's a bit out of his, about out of, out of his normal uh, circles there. Yeah, I do wonder what he's going to be up to with the OPA there. Yeah, that's obviously another huge plot thread that's that's uh, just getting going. Fandomedia.reviews. If all goes according to plan, we will continue to podcast about The Expanse every other episode instead of every three episodes as it was this last time. It just made so much sense to bundle these episodes together after episode four ended with Miller still not even inside Eros. Yeah, we knew what would happen after the next episode, so it kind of worked out that would be a perfect endpoint. Plus, there's an odd number of episodes this season, so at some point we were going to have to break out of our two-episode pattern. That seemed like a good time to do it, so... Until next time, I'm the Butcher of Fanderson Station. Drinking Fanamid Gin.